Welcome, episode 129, and uh, the last official interview I'm going to be doing of this wild year, 2021. Welcome to the Life in Red podcast, lifeinredpodcast.com, at lifeinredpod on Twitter, and at lifeinredpodcast on Facebook and Instagram. My guest today, uh, as we embark on what looks to be more lockdowns and more challenging times when it comes to our mental health. Um, given this Omicron variant and COVID across the country and across the world. Um, I think uh, ending it on uh, talking about mental health will be a good thing. And, you know, a lot of the things we talk about in this episode, you know, might not apply in a sense to to how you can overcome kind of this pandemic fatigue and going through more restrictions and lockdowns and being isolated and, and you know, possibly even getting sick. But it can give hope and it's about overcoming the difficult things in your life, whether it be internal, external and finding ways to, to motivate yourself and come across, or I guess sort of mitigate the, the, the factors that go into our mental health. So we talk a lot about that. We talk about his journey. We talk about where he's at now. We talk about things we've learned and we really talk about healthy masculinity and and men's mental health and how we can embrace this idea of men really coming together in a safe, positive way to talk about their mental health. And it was a really great conversation. Um, I, I highly recommend you check out his podcast. Uh, it is called The Journey with Jared. The Journey with Jared. Say that three times fast. Uh, the Journey with Jared is his podcast. It's available everywhere. Please give it up for my guest, Jared Salikin. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to Life in Red. Jared, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to be here. So uh, Connected through our uh, now, I guess, mutual friend and podcast host, Becca. So yep. Becca's listening, shout out to uh, the unashamed alcoholic Becca for uh, putting us in touch because apparently we have a lot in common, uh, which <laughs> I think is cool uh, because there's not a lot of men talking about mental health or some of the struggles that we've been through. So I appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing some time with me. Yeah, of course. And you know, it's funny. It's a lot of the things I haven't even said to you yet is just like little nuances that I'm like, oh, I do that. Oh, I do that. That's so funny. So, lots in common. So, in the spirit of talking about mental health, I want you to share your story. But before we get into that, I'm always curious, especially, you know, I think we're around the same age. You know, I'm just about to turn 30 next year. So, pretty similar upbringings, probably. Um, before your journey even started, what was your perception of mental health and mental illness, if any? Like, were you even concerned about it? Did you? Did you know about it? Did people in your life talk about it? Or were you kind of the same as me that you were a little bit blindsided when it happened? Yeah. Um, so yeah, really similar in age. I'm 28, just turned 28. Um, you know, mental health for me was always an interesting one where I would say the best way to describe it was in my world, it was for other people. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, uh, my sister, she has had a lot of struggles and, you know, I've supported her throughout my entire life. And um, she was kind of the first big one that it really came to the forefront of, you know, mental health. And so I've always been exposed to it, uh, you know, through that, like we've had we had uh, family therapists come to my house when I was very young. We did that for a little while. Um, but for whatever reason in my brain, it was always for other people. It was other people, you know, struggle with mental health. Other people like look into mental health. They work on it. Uh, but I don't need that. I don't need that help. I'm fine. And I would say that's before my journey really kicked off. That was more so my view of it. Yeah, back I'm thinking even you know, 10 years ago, which, you know, 2011, 2010, not, I mean, that's not a long time in like in a period of like life. That's like not a long time. It's 10 years ago. But even then the perception of mental health was like, it's like you think about people who are seriously suffering. So whether that's depression or something a little more serious, like bipolar or schizophrenia, whatever that is like that, it was like, there was no mental health. It was like, you're either like mentally ill and needed help. And like, no one really just talked about like the little mundane day-to-day things about it. And especially men. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I, resonate with that because I had mental illness run through my family, but it was the same thing. I'm like, well, like, I mean, I'm not like lying in the bed and can't get up. So I guess I'm cool. Like, I guess everything's good. For sure. You know, like even you saying that what comes to mind for me is especially back then it was almost, you know, if you struggle with mental health or if you're talking mental health, you're quote unquote broken or something's wrong with you. Right. And it was a lot more of, you know, are you diagnosed? What are your symptoms? You know, here, something's broken. Let's fix it. Whereas, you know, luckily, I think that the conversation has moved a lot more to almost like wellness, like mental health wellness overall of, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that something's wrong with you. And it's not that it only applies to people that have conditions or diagnosed with something. It's a lot more of an, I think, a healthier conversation of how do I take care of my mental health? And, you know, how do I head off a lot of um, issues before they even get to that point? Yeah, it's uh, the differentiation between like mental illness and mental health and that you don't have to have a diagnosed mental illness to experience mental health challenges, whether that be internal um, or external, you know, losing a job, like having a breakup, uh, someone dying in your family, that type of thing, where it's like, you know, you can struggle with stress or anxiety about something in your life and you don't have to have this serious diagnosed illness. And I think you're right. The conversation has really progressed in the last number of years. Uh, but like, there's still a lot to go for that, like that part of the conversation where it's like, no matter who you are, you experience mental health, whether that be positive or negative, but we're still not there with that. People really acknowledging the difference between like, you don't have to be super serious to also acknowledge that you, you might need a little bit of help. For sure. Yeah. You know, and like the, the analogy that really, sticks in my brain always is just relating it to physical health, right? Whether you take care of your body, whether you work out, whether you don't, um, physical health is just a thing, (laughs) you know, and you can't argue it. It's just a thing, right? Like some people have good physical health. Some people have bad, some people need help with it. Some people just do it themselves. Um, and you know, it's just a very normal conversation. And, um, you know, I think that 
we're trending towards that, but that's more mm-hmm. so the type of conversations that I'd love to have about, you know, mental health, you know, in the future as, you know, a community, as a society. Mm-hmm. So let's go to your journey um, and take me right to the beginning of, you know, what was happening in your life that led up to, I always call it like the light bulb moment or that, that moment where everything just kind of snaps into place, whether it's, you know, for me, it was a, it was a suicide attempt where I was like, oh shit. Okay. If I can get here, you know, I need some help because you're not supposed to be able to get here. So what was happening in your life that led up to that point? For sure. And you know, it's interesting too, because I don't talk about this one a lot, but just talking about the 10 years ago, and it's basically been exactly 10 years since I graduated high school. And so I would say maybe nine years ago, 10 years ago, um, I was in a relationship. Uh, it wasn't necessarily the best relationship. It was my first, my first ever real one. And we were together for a while and we finally officially broke up. And that was the first time that I knew something was different. And I'd always kind of been a little bit up and down. I could get into lulls. I could get into low spots, but this felt very different and was really my first experience of like an actual depressive bout where can't really do a lot, you know, just kind of stuck on the couch, don't want to do anything. Um, But, you know, I kind of ignored that for a couple of years. And, you know, I would take it back to now after doing a lot of work, it was, uh, you know, a lot of things that happened in my childhood, family dynamics, just the the person that I needed to become, um, you know, it forced me to, to just keep a lot of my feelings down and hide them away. Don't let myself express them. And so I've been doing that my entire life. Um, now, probably, I want to say about five, maybe about five or so years ago, maybe four years ago. Um, you know, I basically, there was, there was something that I was, I was just struggling with over and over and over again. And it seemed like I just couldn't, no matter what I tried, I couldn't, um, you know, conquer it or make progress in it or whatever it might've been. And, um, that was the catalyst for me seeking a therapist. Um, Mm -hmm. the specific thing, uh, I'm not able to go into yet. I hope one day, but, um, basically I is so funny. I did it completely by myself. Didn't tell a soul. I called, I, I Googled, you know, um, therapists in Calgary here where I live and, just went down the list and made a list. And I think I called five of them or something that day and found a therapist, met with her, um, started going into things, uh, you know, like, here, this is the problem that I'm coming to you with. I need to be fixed. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Um, and you know, it's funny, even in that first meeting, she goes, Oh, you know, tell me about your childhood. And I go, Oh no, no, no. We don't need to go into that. Like, (laughs) you know, sure. I got bullied a little bit. Like, Um, you know, some things happened, but I've made peace with that. So let's, no, 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 this is what I want to focus on. And she goes, okay, you know, no problem. We go into it, go into it. And, um, I went to therapy for about two years. I think it was about two years before I told the soul, Mm -hmm. um, like not even my sister, who's the closest person to me in my life. Um, where again, like I was talking about before, you know, mental health therapy, getting help was for other people. And I would cheer them on when um, some, I would hear somebody else was going to a therapist or seeking help or whatever it might be. But for whatever reason, when it came to myself, there's a lot of shame around it. 
of, oh, like, I don't want people to know that I need help. I don't want people to, you know, know that I'm seeing somebody. And I think a lot of that, you know, came from, especially, you know, the stigma around mental health in men, you know, Mm -hmm. men seeing a therapist for sure. Uh, And a lot of it just came from the views that I had on myself as well. Um, and, you know, something that I've gone into a lot just uh, through conversations with people and a couple of times on the podcast is this idea that in my mind, I had to be perfect in order to be worthy of love. Mm. And so needing help, seeing somebody, you know, that's not perfect. I can't be perfect if I need help. And that was the other big piece of me um, hiding that away. So. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what you want to dig into because I'm an open book. So really quickly after that, though, saw a therapist uh, again for about those two years, started wanting to explore more and, uh, you know, different areas, um, was exposed to essentially a men's mental health group, mm. uh, went to a meeting, literally founded on Meetup, um, showed up by myself, told myself I wasn't going to talk to anybody. I was just going to sit there. I was just going to listen. Um had just an amazing experience there. Met some amazing men. Um, went to another one, and they talked to me because they they told me that they were starting a men's group here in Calgary. Um, so I joined the men's group. Uh, was in there for about a year, um, which was extremely helpful. You know, just getting to know um, and sharing with men like I've never shared before, Mm. Uh, doing different exercises, you know, approaching different sides of our personality or, you know, like the dark side, the emotions that you don't want to express or that you've suppressed. Um, All throughout that still going to therapy. Um, And yeah, and then decided to leave that group just was time for me to move on. And, um, you know, during that time started the podcast, hit a lot of mental health type topics and you know, I'd say a lot of the conversations that I have are, you know, kind of in this realm. Um, so yeah, that's the, the really quick overview, but uh, anything that you want to go deeper into, I'd love to. I'm not trying to be your therapist here, uh, <laughs> but I do want to talk about the childhood a little bit. Yeah. With what you're comfortable with, of course. Um, one of the things that I've learned through this podcast and especially talking with people Um, who have more severe mental illnesses, whether it be uh, borderline personality disorder, whether it be a dissociative identity disorder, they went through very extreme, extreme childhoods. Now, not everybody who experiences things now later in life needs to go through that extreme of a childhood, but it's so interesting the impact that the things that happened to you as a kid, even when you might not be fully cognitively, like you're like, you're not all there completely yet. Like you carry that with you until you're a, you're an adult. So you mentioned kind of bullying, like if you could go back, what sorts of things do you think that like you were really carrying forward Mm -hmm. into your adult years? Because it sounds like, you know, you were exposed to your, what, what your sister and family were going through and that it would be, a very maybe more open space, but yet you still internalize things. Uh, mm. And I find that part interesting because I do the same thing. No one told me I, I shouldn't talk about mental health or I shouldn't go to therapy, but yet somehow I internalized it. Do you, do you like, have you went back on there and have some things like you're comfortable, like talking about? Yeah, that? yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think the first thing that I'll say is for a long time, I really struggled because, um, 
you know, there weren't the quote unquote big events that happened to me, right? There was no like major trauma that I was the center of. There was no, you know, major event that I was the center of. And so I almost had imposter syndrome of like, well, why do I struggle with this? Because nothing, you know, bad has happened to me. Now, very traumatic things happen to people around me. Um, and, you know, things that, you know, I, I was part of the situation, but not the focus. Um, but again, I, you know, I told myself, well, it didn't actually happen to me. So why, why can it affect me? It shouldn't be able to affect me. It didn't happen to me. So I think that was a huge piece of it. Um, and it was always funny of when I would hear people talking about like, you know, it would be trauma survivors and whether that was abuse, um, you know, physical, sexual, whatever it might be, or, you know, extreme mental disorders. Um, and I would understand them and I go, Oh, like I do that. Like, I think about that, like, you know, this, these are some of the symptoms that I also share in. And so that was a very interesting disconnect for me, which I've now worked on accepting a lot. Mm. Um, that, you know, I still experienced traumas, even though they weren't the kind of, you know, major five that people usually, um, point to, uh, that happened to me. There was a conversation I had a few episodes ago with uh, a fellow advocate, Barbie Liss, and we talked about the collateral, um, the collateral impact, whether it's of, you know, the pandemic, we could talk about it there, uh, whether it's you're losing somebody from being sick, you know, someone in a car accident, you may not be in it, but you are collaterally affected. And what happened to her is her daughter was assaulted. And she talked about how that affected her and acknowledging that. And I think you just brought up that point as well, that just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean you didn't experience some sort of trauma. Of course, it's not as maybe not as severe or as the victim of whatever this was, but you still have residual effects that go through it. And one of the things that you brought up also there, which is like pretty much one of the first things I say when I give a mental health talk is I've like never had anything bad happen to me either. Like I didn't even experience like what you went through with your family. Like I was like, good. Like everything was good for me growing up pretty much. And um, yet I still felt so alone and didn't want to live. And you're right. I've never heard it put that way, but you're right. It's like the imposter syndrome where it's like, like, why am I feeling this way? Like, it doesn't make sense. I shouldn't feel this way. And yet you do. And then you feel guilt because you're like, I don't have it as bad as other people yet. For some reason I'm, I'm feeling like a victim, like as if something bad happened to me. And, And it's like, it's, I don't know. It's really confusing until you can acknowledge it. For sure. And, you know, I think that's a huge one too, that you just built or sorry, brought up was the guilt factor, you know, like even, you know, thinking about that conversation that you had, which obviously I haven't listened to and I don't know much about, but, you know, the guilt of this shouldn't be affecting me when this happened to somebody else, right? I shouldn't, I don't want to take away from the attention. I don't, you know, like they, I need to support them right now. I can't ask for support because it didn't happen to me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge piece of it is that guilt. Um, and really what, what helped me on that piece is learning that I can have my support systems that are outside of that so that I can support those people, but I have my people to fall back on that can support me that I can, you know, quote unquote, be selfish on 
of like, this is how it affected me. And I need to focus on me right now. I need to work through some of these feelings. Um, and having those people to fall back on was, was really important and really helped a lot for me. Um, but yeah, I, you know, even going back to the other question about the childhood, some of the other things that, you know, have come up was, I was always, I've always been very emotionally intelligent, like even as a child. And, you know, as I've kind of dug into it, I found, and again, this is through years of looking at this, but um, the role that I would put myself in was actually the parent of my household. And, Mm. you know, from call it the age of 12, I was acting as the parent of my household. And what I mean by that is that when the family was fighting, you know, I would wait and I would listen until it got to a certain point. Once it got to a certain point and I knew I had to step in, I would, I would go step in. I would, you know, whatever that meant, whether that meant, you know, going in with higher energy than everybody else, whether that meant like, you know, mediating and calming everybody down, whatever it might've been, whatever that situation called for, that was my role. Um, for my mother, I was her emotional support system. Uh, again, even at a very young age, I would, I understood that sometimes she would get overwhelmed and she needed to talk about these things. She needed to dump these things is what it turned into. And so she would dump them on me. Um, You know, for my father, you know, feeling very emasculated in the household and having lots of, um, you know, anger and um, frustrations, I would allow him to take those out on me, right? Whether that's just yelling at me and understanding, oh, he was just in a fight, right? Like upstairs, he needs to let some of that, you know, frustration out. So he's going to come and find something to yell at me at and understanding that even as such a young kid and taking that on. Um, and so basically what it taught me was that I wasn't important. I needed to support mm. everybody else. Like I needed to um, put their needs above mine. So that was a huge part piece of it. Um, the bullying piece actually was really interesting. And, you know, again, after looking at it for a very long time, it, you know, it was elementary school. I came in in grade two, (laughs) the new kid at school. um, You know, I think most of the time when you're new at that age, like you're going to get bullied a little bit. Um, And now I'm going to say this with doing a lot of work around it where I don't, I no longer blame my mother for this because I know that it was coming from a good place, but essentially her advice to me was, oh, the reason they're picking on you is because they want to be your friends. Mm. And how I internalize that as, you know, what would I have been, eight years old at grade, in grade two, whatever it was, um, I internalized it as, oh, if people like me, they're going to treat me poorly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, digging into some of those lessons that I had learned and decided as a child had then become truths through my life and they had carried on. And so whether that's, you know, into my friendships, into my relationships, you know, going into adulthood of it's weird if they're too nice to me. It's weird if they don't, you know, do something to bring me down because, excuse me, again, like in my brain, it was, if they care about me, they're going to treat me poorly. And so I almost needed that to feel comfortable. Man. Yeah. What you just said, I think a a lot of people um, almost feel that way, especially when you whether it's from your parents or your parents, or maybe like one of your first partners you were dating, but I think a lot of people, especially in their twenties, 
internalize that factor because they're not used to like what a, a proper and healthy relationship is. And yeah, you're either used to like being treated like dirt or abused or being yelled at or being manipulated or gaslighted, whatever it might be. Um, and then when something good comes along, you're, it's like, it's like, oh no, this is weird or, or it's boring. Right. That's another thing too. When you're so used to the fluctuations of, of people's moods, you know, when someone's just like even keel and like willing to communicate, you're like, no, you're, you're weird. You're boring, man. Like I can't vibe with this when really it's like, if you haven't done the work, it's, 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 to me, it's like so scary because it it can happen so gradually. Like it's just something your mom maybe just repeated a few times to you. And then all of a sudden now, you know, you carry that forward for so long. And like, how often does that happen to people? It's, it's fascinating, but scary. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And, you know, like that was one of the craziest things is that, you know, in my being, that was a truth. It was like, there was no question about it. Like, I didn't even realize that it was a decision I made when I was eight years old. It was just a truth of like, you know, subconsciously that drove every single relationship that I had. And of course, there's lots of different um, factors that went into it. But, you know, that was a very big underlying one. And that was some of the work that I did was looking back at some of the decisions I made as a child and asking if they still ring true as an adult now. You know, Mm -hmm. if I was in the same situation, would I make that same decision? Would I, you know, look at things the same way? And sometimes, yes. However, actually looking at them and deciding or deciphering what's true and what was a decision was huge for me. One of the things, and I want to dovetail into men's mental health for a bit here, because what you were going through, I think, is what, you know, a lot, like everyone goes through, like women, especially when they have to feel like they have to like be the head of the household or something at a young age or it happens. But something you mentioned about men's mental health, which I think we struggle with is that we have to be the, or are conditioned to be the strong providers and that we can't talk about our problems because, mm-hmm. you know, other, whether it's other people have it worse. And that's kind of what's happening to a lot of men and why we're seeing so many I call it the alt-right pipeline um, where you start to get validated by people who might be a little bit more nefarious. And then you kind of slide through the rabbit hole on social media and YouTube. But it's the fact that a lot of men feel we can't talk about our problems because, you know, especially as straight white males, you know, we are kind of at that, the top of the the hierarchy of people, right. And white privilege and all those things. Um, And it kind of makes it seem like we can't talk about mental health and our feelings because, you know, so many other people have it worse. It kind of goes to what we were a little bit talking earlier. We're both open. We both communicate quite well and talk with so many people about these things. But do you still carry some guilt when you talk about it because of those things Um, that because I know I do, I know I'm like, listen, I know it's important, but I'm still like, I know people are going to be like, oh, Ryan talking about men's mental health because, you know, like, like they have it so bad. Right. And it, it's almost like it's invalidated and it's really hard for a lot of men to feel like they can speak up because like right now, like a lot of people aren't listening about to do like to it. 
For sure. You know, and I, I think it's something that I struggled with a ton. And luckily, I've been able to wrap my head around it and kind of approach it in an interesting way, uh, which has helped me a ton. And I think the biggest one is, was well, you know, like one just acknowledging it mm-hmm. of and like acknowledging, yes, like I am, you know, a straight white male. And just because of that, I'm going to have it a lot easier than most of the people out there. Um, but I think what really helped me, it was actually, um, luckily enough, I was in the men's group right around the Black Lives Matter movement, right when it was kind of at its peak. Um, and we had a couple um, men of color in there. And I was able to see a very different side. And for the first time in my life, I was able to see somebody that I know and care about really kind of be vulnerable about the things that they've experienced and how it affects them. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, I started doing a lot of research and wanting to know more. And, um, you know, there were a couple, there were two quotes that really helped me with that. But the biggest one specifically for this is acknowledging other people's traumas does not take away from your own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what helped me because I feel like a lot of times what happens is, you know, almost feelings of invalidation of, you know, you start to open up of, you know, I'm struggling with this, or I have struggled with this. I've gone through that. And, um, you know, or you listen to other people and they're telling you, you know, why, whatever it might be or what they've gone through and acknowledging the fact that, you know, they can also have their experiences, they can have their traumas. And that doesn't take away from your own because the feelings that, you know, were bubbling up inside of me a lot of times were, well, how come mine don't count, Mm. right? How come mine are just swept aside because of, you know, how I was born or, you know, they seem very bad to me, (laughs) you know, they, they have affected me a ton. Like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily by any means call my life easy, which Mm -hmm. is a lot of times what is, you know, put on to, um, to me of like, yeah, but right. Mm -hmm. It can't be Mm -hmm. that bad because, um, and so just acknowledging that and really just trying to meet it with empathy and yes, just acknowledging that for sure, my life has been a lot easier in many ways. And that doesn't mean that it's been easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, um, like things aren't a competition and they're not mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. Because you have it bad doesn't mean like I can't have it bad either. And I'm not trying to compete with who has it worse. Like we both have our struggles. We all have our struggles and yeah. none of that is invalidated because someone else has harder struggles or more struggles, right? It, you know, you, in the, in terms of like the things we want to solve, like, sure, maybe our things are maybe a little bit lower down on the list, but that's okay. Like for me, really doing the work, like you said, like talking with people and and hearing their experience about how, whether it's race and how that plays with mental health and whether it's gender, whether it's whatever it is, when you listen and you hear that, and like you said, so important, meet it with empathy. And you're like, like you start to see it now. And then you're just like, you know, like I can work on my struggles too. I can talk about it in the circle of people that I, that care about me and my supports Um, And we can take care of that while whether it's the larger world has a bigger conversation on some, some really important issues. You know what I mean? 
for sure. You know, and I think another big part for me was, um, and why your story resonates a ton is that while in the men's group, getting to know these men, you know, I looked at them as, you know, these incredibly strong, like, you know, um, vulnerable, like all the qualities that I looked up to and just amazing men as I got to know them. And, you know, one, one night, uh, the conversation went to suicide and there were several men that had either planned out their own suicide or even attempted their own suicide. And again, that was the first time that I had directly experienced that with people that I love and care about. Mm -hmm. And so that feeling of if I can open up and share my struggle, if I can have these conversations, if this helps even one person go down a different path, that voice is so much louder than everybody else that says, well, you shouldn't be doing that, or that's not this important or whatever it might be. I was doing a mental health talk yesterday and I got posed a question that I thought was really good. I want to pose the same question to you when it comes to men's mental health. How do we encourage more men to talk about it? Yeah. And you know, all I can do is pull from my personal experience. And one of the hardest parts for me in my journey was this feeling of being alone, mm-hmm. that I was the only one that struggled with these things. I was the only one that, um, you know, felt this way. And like the one that I go back to a ton is, you know, body image is body mm-hmm. image issues as a, as a man are one of the you know, most taboo subjects of like, no, you're not allowed to like, what are you talking about? No, it's just, it's not even a conversation. Um, and the freeing feeling that I had when, um, at one of those meetups, another, another man, you know, unprompted brought that up about his struggles. And so for me, my answer to it is people like you having these conversations openly, um, allowing men to not feel as alone, And whether they then start looking into it privately or they start talking about it publicly, I think that is the biggest piece. It's bringing it into the conversation, actually starting the conversation and then allowing spaces for people to explore. Yeah, that it's true. And my answer to this person was one, we need people to lead by example. We need men to be positive role models. And that not only includes, and this is something I try to do a lot is not like not just talk about men's mental health in a way where it's like super men focused because i think a lot of people get really defensive or confused when you talk about um men's mental health because it sometimes gets put into like men's rights activism which is like mm, like very like right wing we, we don't yeah. want to kind of like get associated with that so what i try to do is while trying to be a role model and with men's mental health, it's also acknowledging that like, we have to be better for like other people, um, whether that's the black community, the indigenous community, transgender, non-binary folks, that it's really important to one, speak up and support them, but also get out of the way um, and create those spaces for them as well, without us interjecting our our thoughts and, and everything and just kind of sit back and listen. So leading by example for me is a huge one. And the second, which I really believe in, is starting young. I don't know if you've experienced the same with your friend or friends or like people you may know when now you're out, you've put out a lot of work, you're, you're talking about it, 
but you still have people, you know, that are very like resistant and it, people older, especially like, you know, like toxic masculinity is just so ingrained in how they view things. And, you know, I live in Ontario, you live in Alberta, and I'm sure, you know, lots of people who might vote for some other opposite ends of the spectrum that don't think the same way that maybe we do, but it's, it's starting young and giving young people and young men, the tools and resources to really be able to support themselves and think critically and develop that emotional intelligence, um, which I think for you and me is both the most critical piece of it all, because you need to be able to understand other people's situations uh, just like you would kind of deal with your own. For sure. You know, and like, I'm a huge believer in, you know, healing yourself allows you to heal other people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I haven't thought about the, you know, starting young piece. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up, but, you know, I think it's a lot easier as well. It's harder in a lot of ways, but it's also easier where if you have certain behaviors, certain thought patterns that for whatever reason, now you've been stuck in for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, it's very hard. It's, it's a lot harder to change that. Mm-hmm. But if you, from a young age are able to express yourself, explore and um, learn and don't feel like you have to be put into this specific box and whatever that is, right. Um, whether that's even like, professionally or personally or mental health or what you look like, or what you should do. Um, it's, I, yeah, I, I'm a huge believer in just treating everybody as an individual and it's going to be different for every single person. And so allowing that space and getting away from this is how it should look like. Yeah. Um, no, you brought up a good point. It, I, I wish I remember what the article was or what I was listening to, but it was like a scientist, like a neuroscientist. And they were talking about how hard it is for somebody to change their mind after like 25, 27, right. When that, that point where your brain really is like kind of fully developed, like most people don't change their mind unless they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they put in the work to change it. So whether that happens from, a podcast and they were like, Oh, I like what these guys are saying. And that changes their opinion or something happens to them in their personal life. But I mean, we see it all the time on social media. Now it's like, you could present people with all the facts and science and well-intentioned things. And they're just like, fuck you. Like they don't even care. So that's why when they're young, your brain is so much more malleable and it's so much more receptive to information. So even if you're a cocky teenager who might be half in half out listening, um, you know, there's still better, there's probably a better chance with that than it is like trying to talk to a 50 year old man who has been totally just not into these conversations his entire life. Yeah. No, for uh, sure. No, go yeah. ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to move on, but if you have a, a something to, to say, please. Nothing important. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> important. Um, now that you are, you know, a little more public with how you're feeling, you know, what has the reception been, whether it's in your workplaces, within your family or your circle of friends and people, you know, uh, your dating life, like are there challenges or things better? Uh, you know, what, now that you've put in all this work, like how is it all kind of like the perception about you? Uh, how yeah. does that go on? For sure. And, you know, is is very interesting for me. Um, 
with how tied my professional and personal lives have always been. I've always loved entrepreneurship. You know, like work is actually a hobby for me. And I really love working on things that I believe in and that I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, and this ties into a little bit of my journey where um, because of the mental work that I was doing, uh, it led me to very extreme external professional changes. And essentially, I um, walked away from a business that I had been building for three years with um, nothing. Um, it put me into a ton of debt. Uh, I went from essentially being like a part owner um, in a restaurant to having to get a job as essentially a busboy uh, so I can pay the bills. Um, and so there was a huge contrast in the external and internal worlds. Because as I started doing the work, it put me into the worst, um, call it professional place I'd ever been in in my life, where, you know, my other positions, the other things that I've been doing, people would look up to me like, wow, that's so cool that you're doing that. Um, And I got a lot of that external validation. Um, However, I was miserable, like absolutely miserable. And so it's funny seeing that contrast of now, you know, when I'm, you know, at these not sexy, you know, things that I'm doing, but I feel better than I ever have. Mm. Um, the biggest things that I noticed was I was honestly impressed or surprised with how much support I was given. And I would say 95% of the people that, you know, I talked to and opened up about were extremely, extremely, extremely supportive. And me being vulnerable and opening up to them actually brought us closer. It actually strengthened the relationship instead of weakening it like I thought it would. Again, going back to those ideas of perfection of like, well, this person's going to see I'm not perfect anymore. So obviously they're going to cast me aside. Um, But it, it really strengthened those relationships. And the interesting part was the people that did not accept the changes. It was so much easier to let go of those relationships because I was, it was almost like I was showing the truth of them Mm -hmm. and seeing the overwhelming positive support, you know, it showed that, no, like this is the right path for me. This is, I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm actually moving in the right direction. And the people that are going against it, you know, either have their own motives or don't actually care about me, whatever it is, but it was just very, very clear. And so that was a very interesting experience for me. Mm. That's that's super interesting because I didn't have a lot of people leave my life because of the changes I've made. Um, things fizzled out, but that's that's interesting that people would choose to not accept your better self. But you're you're right that I think sometimes people, for whatever reason, it's um, they're using it as like a benefit for themselves, maybe or you know, maybe your, your relationships tied to something like, you know, booze or drinking and partying or drugs or like whatever it is. I'm not saying that's you, but like, you know, right. Like you realize like, Oh, this relationship isn't really based on friendship. It's just based on like, sort of like circumstance, which is okay. Sometimes. I mean, I'm not, I'm not shaming that, but one thing I do want to like touch on, and I think this is another like big thing for men. You're like, you're an entrepreneur, right? Uh, I assume you go to the gym, I assume, you know, you enjoy putting in hard work into things and, and working hard and 
you know, doing all those things. And it takes me to the conversation I like having around grind culture because okay. we like, I'm, I'm the same. Some of it resonates with me, you know, like work hard, uh, be passionate, like try to work harder than everybody, like all that stuff. It, it sometimes resonates with me, but you often see, and especially a lot of men really, really go into this sort of, I don't even know. They just have the blinders on. It's just like hustle and grind all the time. And if that truly makes you happy, like, fine. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to like tell you not to do that. But I think sometimes it's a little bit fake as well. You know, what's your first, is it like, where's there a point or is it very enticing to you as well? And now that you know so much more about yourself and mental health, like, do you have trouble maybe navigating it or have you found a way to make it to work it and adapt it to the way you need to like work on and take care of yourself as well? For sure. Yeah. Um, just really quickly, I want to go back to that last point and say one more thing was um, I would say similar to you that a lot of my relationships, it wasn't like they're stronger or they ended. <laughs> a lot of it was I changed the rules of that relationship, whatever that was, right? The friendship, um, romantic relationship, whatever. I changed the rules of it and some of them got stronger, some of them got weaker, some of them, you know, are just less frequent. Um, They weren't all extreme changes. Mm -hmm. They're just different, right? Right. And relationships ebb and flow. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to bring a little bit of clarity Mm -hmm. to to that. But uh, on your your question for the grind culture, for sure. It's, it's been an interesting experience for myself. Um, again, you know, being an entrepreneur, being, you know, I was an athlete as well. I played football for eight years, played for three years of junior football. And, you know, I, when I first started university, I was in five courses, full-time student, and then I would have football practice five hours a night, six nights a week. Right. And so, uh, once I quit football, I went straight into entrepreneurship, which was even more. And, you know, I was, uh, again, a full-time student working 40 to 60 hours a week during the school year, and then transferring into probably 80-ish hour weeks, you know, call it 60 to 80 hour weeks over the summer when I was full-time working. And that was just my life. That's how I've always operated. Um, What I didn't realize is a lot of those driving forces were very, very unhealthy. Uh, I was looking for that external validation of, I was working this hard. I was doing these things a lot of times to show my worth. And what I realized too, is very interesting is that a lot of times I would attach myself to a strong male figure and I would do everything to impress them, to, uh, you know, realize their dreams for them, whatever it might be. And, you know, I, what I ran into was that I would set these goals for myself and I'm not a huge goal setter by any means, but it was like, once I do this, you know, I'll feel happy. I'll feel like I've achieved. Mm. Then you'd get there and I'd be like, Oh, I literally do not feel any different on the inside. Like, Oh, I know what the problem is. I didn't set my goal high enough. So let's double it. And then I'd get there and same thing. You know, I wouldn't feel any different. And so, you know, keep running into that year after year, you know, um, it, it, it was very confusing for me and also, again, led to going down that personal development, mental health journey. Um, 
as I realized a lot of those driving forces and how they were more unhealthy of, I was basically doing everything to show people that I'm worthy of love is what it came down to. Mm. Um, and blowing up my life, having my quarter life crisis, as I like to refer to it, uh, I felt lost for a very long time. And I had to have many, many conversations, both with myself and with people around me, with my therapist, with, you know, um, people that I'm really close to that I, I rely on of, do I actually want this? What do I actually want in my life? And I realized that I do truly love working and I love, I love, you know, being busy. I love doing all of that. Uh, but I had to find the motivating factor for doing it for me. And that was a two-year journey, one that I would say only until the last maybe three months I've actually been able to follow through on. Mm. Uh, I realized it and like, no, this is actually what I want to do. And I was challenged on it a lot. Like, no, I do want to do it. I do want to run a business. I want to be successful. I want to, you know, all of my wants. Um, and then a lot of fear came into it as well. Like, okay, now I know that I want that, but now I'm afraid to. Now I don't have the motivation to because my entire life I've been using external validation as motivation. And now I need to try to figure out, oh, I'm doing something for myself. Like I need to get off the couch with nobody there to hold me accountable. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would agree with you in saying, I believe a lot of that culture comes from maybe not the best intentions of trying to one up people, trying to show your worth, trying to, again, you're in that box of that's what a man is kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I'm a huge believer in it's not the actions themselves, but it's the motivations behind them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more of an individual question again, of why are you actually doing this? And sometimes you might not even know, but really digging into those and having those kinds of conversations. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. Um, Cause I think you're right that I think some people, not everyone, they get caught up in, well, all my friends are doing it or everyone else is doing it. Or there's someone I follow on social media or a role model that I look up to who's doing it. So like, that's what I should do. I think a lot of the time, um, a lot of people are running from something um, like they're just trying to like busy themselves so they can ignore what's going on. And part of that is the grind culture. I never really subscribed so much to that, but I was running from things by like trying to help other people. So I was like, I'm going to help everybody else. And I'm never like even going to acknowledge like trying to help myself because I'm too busy. I'm too busy helping everybody I'm trying to save the world out here. Right. And I think that's like the, like it's the same attitude and the same thing. It's just like a, your, your outlet's a little bit different. And I think that's a, what a lot of people get trapped into as well. For sure. You know, and thanks for bringing that up because I would say for the longest time, one of the hardest things for me to do was sit with myself. And that's <laughs> yeah. one of the reasons why I kept so busy. Like, well, no, if I'm working 80 hours a week, like I don't have to sit there and like <laughs> deal with my own brain. And when I was, you know, when I didn't have anything going on, it's like, okay, you know, what can I do? So I don't actually have to deal with my own thoughts, whether that's, you know, um, playing video games, whether that's, you know, in the car, incapable of sitting there and like in silence or even listening to the radio, like, I'm just going to call somebody so I can talk to them and I don't have to mm. actually think about anything. Um, and it was definitely a matter of running away. And there's so many different vi vices, mm -hmm. um, but it's exactly what I was doing. 
know what it was for me? It was the pandemic. Mm. Even all I knew about mental health, everything I was already doing beforehand, public speaking, advocating, I still had trouble sitting with myself. I was always like lonely. I would try to insert myself into relationships that maybe I didn't want just to have that other person. But then the pandemic, and then I went through a, like a breakup, like right around the same time when the pandemic started. And I, I had nowhere to go. I couldn't go out and drink. I couldn't go out and see friends because we were in lockdown. You know, the, all I really had was some people online, my podcast and my family. Um, but it, you really it like sort of do you like taking that like leap and just like changing your life. For me, it was the pandemic where I was forced to actually sit down and get to know myself deeply, intimately, and have those tough conversations with myself. And I credit that to coming out so much more confident, so much more emotionally intelligent, and so much having so much more like, what's the word? I don't want to say perception. Maybe it's perception. Anyway, like just this moment where I was just like, everything seems so clear. There's so much clarity on where I wanted to go, but it's because I sat down with myself and was forced to like do the work and talk to myself, which I think 95, if not more percent of the world is actually afraid to do. For sure. You know, and very similar for me, it was the, the pandemic was the first time in my life. It forced me to stop. I couldn't busy myself with work anymore. Yeah. I was like, no, you're going to fucking sit at home <laughs> in your room and you're going to deal with some shit. Right. And it was, it gave me that space and forcibly so, but I'm very like extremely, extremely grateful yeah. for that because it forced me to go through a lot of those things and, you know, face a lot of those demons that I had pushed aside for so long. Talk about the podcast journey with Jared. What, I mean, I'm always interested in the the point where like you do the work yourself, which is great, but then you start to want to share that work with other people. So what was that point for you and why a podcast? For sure. So uh, it started in the men's group. Um, we were making goals. We were really actually where, where it came from is as I was starting to do the work, as I was looking at myself, I realized that the thing that scared me the most was also the thing that I wanted the most. And what I mean by that is I think of it as like the spotlight. Now that's not necessarily talking fame. That's not necessarily talking notoriety, but just attention. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to be seen. However, as soon as that attention, as soon as that spotlight was put on me, I was so incredibly uncomfortable that I would just shove it away and move on, get it off of me because it scared the living shit out of me. And realizing that I went, okay, well, I'm going to, I want to conquer this. I want to face this. And so I'm going to do something public. And I went, okay, well, I can talk to people. I feel like I can talk to people. So podcast makes sense. Um, and I made it my goal for that quarter was I was going to do a podcast. I was going to release it. Um, no real intention around it. I didn't really know where I was going to go. I, I was doing a ton of mental health work at that time. So I'm like, you know, it's going to make sense that I'm going to have some of these conversations. Um, and funny enough, it really started off as a personal development journey for myself. And I went, I don't care if three people listen, <laughs> you know, I don't care mm-hmm. anything like that. It's more important for me to actually go out and do it. 
And, you know, I tell a story a lot of the first time I recorded my first three episodes and it was like, it was to the wire to hit my goal. I need to publish them tonight. And all I need to do is hit the publish button. There wasn't any big announcement. I had told maybe five people that I was even doing it, but the fear to hit that publish button, to put it out into the world, it took me 45 minutes in my room. Mm-hmm. I literally I'd go and go to press. And I'm like, no, 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 I need, I need to do a lap. And, um, that's really how it started. And I'm a huge believer in shining light on, you know, your demons. And so that was the other big piece of it for myself was I'm going to talk about the things that I struggle with. You know, I'm going to do an episode on body image. I'm, and really just open up and talk about it. I'm going to do, you know, an episode on depression, um, whatever it might be. Because I think I lived my life in fear a lot of times. And I would try to hide those things of, you know, talking to anyone. I don't want them to see those, those in me. I don't want them to find out that, you know, I'm insecure or um, that I feel this way. And so in my own mind, it was, okay, now I'm going to force myself, put it out on the interwebs. <laughs> and, and now it's out there. Like anybody can find this. And um, I don't need to be afraid anymore because it's out there. Like, I just almost assume that everybody knows that about me. And so if it comes up, I've already talked about it, you know, it doesn't surprise me and it doesn't scare me anymore. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where it started and it's evolved a little bit since then, but that was really the essence of it. What are maybe one, two, three, some of the biggest things that you've learned or taken away or common themes that, really before the start of that podcasting journey, you didn't necessarily know or think about much before. I like, I know I've had a, a lot of things that like come up that really have changed my, my perception of the world and, and how I operate. What were some of those things for you? Um, you know, I would say, I would say some of the biggest ones are that I didn't realize just how common a lot of these struggles are with people. And it was funny, even going into it, you know, I thought I was a genius. I'm like quarter life crisis instead of midlife crisis. I'm Mm -hmm. the first person to ever come up with this. Nobody's ever thought of it. I'm going to coin it. And then talking to people, it's just like, oh no, yeah, I I went through that. I went through that. I went through that. I went through that. I struggle with this, you know, like I'm feeling lost. I'm questioning things that I'm doing and, you know, talking to people from literally all over the world, all different ages, sexes. Um, genders, sexual orientations, a lot of the themes are so similar and the details Mm -hmm. are extremely different, Mm -hmm. but the themes at the core of them are very, very similar, if not the exact same. And so, you know, it, I, I think that's the biggest takeaway is that, you know, these themes are so universal and it can help so many people by just talking about them, but they aren't conversations that are commonplace. So many people, and that's empathy, don't want to look outside their own experience with whatever the subject is in their in life, right? It just, you have your bubble and it's what you know, and you don't want to consider like other people's perspectives, but you're right. And I have the same realization that you can go all around the world and the details are different, but the human, the humanity, the human struggle is very much the same kind of no matter where you go. And we truly are 
more the same than we are different. And a lot of people don't want to like recognize that. And of course, a lot of people have the differences, but like the differences are rooted in the same things we struggle. They're just different contexts, really. For sure. And you know, it's, I, I've come to realize a lot of it is what you focus on, mm-hmm. right? If you're looking for differences, you're going to find them, you know, it's easy to find differences. It's also very easy to find similarities and it's more what you're looking for and what you're focusing on. Yeah. I get asked this question all the time and I don't know if you plan to ask this question to me, but I never have a great answer, but I'm going to ask you it anyway and see if you have a good answer. What's your, what's your favorite episode? What's like your favorite guest that you've had on where you just walked away and you're just like, shit, that was good. <laughs> that was a good one. You know, I, I do get asked it a lot and I, I never have a good answer. <laughs> I would say, I, I would say there's a couple that have actually read or sorry, led to real relationships which are really cool of, you know, Hey, Hey, random person, you want to come to a podcast episode? Yeah, sure. Okay. Talk for an hour. Like, Hey, do you want to be friends? Yeah. (laughs) Um, I would say though, you know, some of the most powerful ones for me, like, you know, a a big one was the body image one, Mm. right. Cause that was something I held so much shame around for my entire life and going and having an open, honest conversation about it in public uh, was terrifying, um, but led was so freeing afterwards. Um, and then actually probably the most impactful one for myself was luckily, uh, with two gentlemen that I'm really close with, uh, Nuke and Hafiz, they're actually cousins. And this was again, during the black lives matter movement, I had a conversation with them about it, asking a lot of the questions that I feel, people are afraid to ask. And um, it was a very difficult episode, um, but one that I'm very glad that I did have. Yeah. It, uh, social media sometimes isn't the place to be having those conversations, but you're right. Um, there's a lot of things we're thinking that we can't say for fear of, or whether it's you know being taken out of context or just it's not an appropriate question. Like I'm totally okay. If like I ask a question to somebody and they're like, not a good question, Ryan, smarten the hell up. I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> right. But like social media isn't that place. You need to have those people you trust in your life. And thankfully, like I'm the same way. I've had friends to come on and talk about those difficult subjects um, and give me that, give me that time and energy of theirs to like do the education work. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you sometimes need to put, a human voice to that instead of just reading it on social media or reading an article. Sometimes it just doesn't connect the same way as like a human telling you those things. And I, yeah. it, it always makes me wary because I don't like to ask people to come on and talk about these things, especially when, you know, whether it's the murder of George Floyd or, you know, the residential schools across Canada this summer, like I don't want to like, reach out to people and be like, Hey, you want to come on my podcast and like talk about this very traumatic incident? Like it's not appropriate, but when people offer or are willing um, or reach out to me about it, like I'm just, I'm thankful because we need those, we need the voices and the human perspective behind it for really to connect with people who need to hear it. 
for sure. No. And you know, like that's, that's huge. And I, I was so thankful to both of them because they allowed me to feel safe enough to do it. Um, of, you know, we had a deep enough connection and relationship and, uh, it offered that safety that I felt okay. in even doing it. Yeah. Um, where can people find your podcast is everywhere. It's the journey yep. with Jared, uh, website, social media is all that stuff. Where can people hear more of you, more of your journey? Because I don't want people to learn everything through this. I want them to go listen. <laughs> so where do they find you for sure? Uh, basically on all socials as well. It's just my full name, um, at Jared Salikin. Um, I'd say I'm most active on Instagram, uh, but also on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, um, those are probably the best places to find me. And like you said, podcast is everywhere that you find it. So, um, you can just search up the journey with Jared there. Have you ventured into TikTok yet? Not yet. Uh, it's so funny. I love having the conversations. I hate the post-production on everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. I hate listening to the sound of my own voice. Uh, for me. Yeah. so me posting videos and podcasts is very funny because I'm like, man, like, some nasally. So I, I feel that part of it, but I, I love sitting and having the intimate hour conversations with people for the first time and really getting to know them. So I appreciate you coming on and being open and vulnerable and talking about the things that we talked about. I know it's not easy. I know it can be very draining. So I hope you're able to be charged after, but I do really appreciate it. And uh, I thank you, sir. Yeah, no, I, I'm so thankful that uh, we got connected. I can't thank you enough for having me on and um, the amazing questions that you have, but also just the amazing space that you um, have created here. So thank you. And it was absolutely my pleasure. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.